I'm Jeff Cohen. When you need me, I'll stand beside you. I'm there for you, wherever you go. Peter Himmelman's musical career has spanned more than four decades. His accomplishments are numerous and diverse. He's a Grammy and Emmy-nominated solo artist, children's songwriter, film, and television soundtrack composer. His discography includes more than 40 albums. He's also a visual artist and a Baal who's balanced his busy musical career with Jewish observance. There's so much to talk about with him, so let's jump right in. Peter, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. So I can see just from the intro that I could talk to you for three or four hours, and we don't have that much time, so we're going to try to get into the key highlights of both your Jewish and musical journey. We'll keep it short, sweet, succinct. <laughs> okay, we'll do our best, and let's take it right from the top and just give our listeners a sense of where you were born and raised. Yeah, I was raised in uh, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. That's home to Al Franken, Thomas Friedman, Peggy Orenstein, Three Quarters of the Prince's Band, and <laughs> numerous other luminaries. And Peter Himmelman. Well, you put that in there. My mom and both of you, that makes two. That's great. <laughs> That's a fan base right there. Mm-hmm. It's a big beginning. All right. So you said Minnesota. And now in terms of Jewish observance, what's like your baseline? Like how were you raised in terms of Jewish customs and holidays that you observed? Yeah. I mean, we were, I think, a unique family. St. Louis Park is this sort of suburb of Minneapolis. And it was derisively called St. Jewish Park because the 2% Jewish population when I was growing up was very outsized in their achievements. So it seemed like we were much more numerous, which is sort of the way of the exilic Jew from, you know, millennia until now. My grandma Rose spoke Yiddish, and uh, there was a lot of Yiddish in the house. We were sort of Zionistic. I'd gone to Israel when I was eight years old, year after the Six-Day War. My mother rather frequently lit Shabbos candles. We didn't observe kashrut at all. I'd never actually really seen anybody, any families that did. For me, Judaism, observant Judaism, was nothing that I had any negative feelings about whatsoever. It was sort of something quaint from a Shalom Aleichem story. So I was never disabused of Judaism's value by seeing, you know, some purported from person do bad things. It just wasn't anything for me. And I was a very proud Jewish kid. There was a lot of anti-Semitism there, so either you had to cower or fight, and I chose the latter, and I felt sort of a tribal relationship to Judaism, as I even do now. Well, so are there specific examples or instances where you faced anti-Semitism that you can share? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was in eighth grade, so it's probably rounding the hall of Westwood Junior High, and there was these three you know, we called them dirt balls. Other generations call them burnouts. And they were like tough guys. They played on the hockey team. And they were hip-checking people into the lockers. If you're not prepared for a hip-check, you go flying into the lockers. And I noticed quickly that Alvin Finkelstein, my cousin Elaine Camel, all these people that they were selecting to hip-check were all Jewish. And there was no way they were going to be hip-checking me. And I stood in front of the biggest guy who was, you know, a year older and just stood there and, you know, said, don't even try it. And he smashed me in the face, which is the first time I'd gotten hit in the nose. And my nose was bleeding. And I noticed quickly that the hip-check stuff stopped, you know. It just was like a bunch of very frightened disturbed people probably come from families where violence was a thing. And that's something that really gets me going, you know, see somebody that's doing actual physical or emotionally violent things to Jewish people, which I feel is a familial thing to me. It's like my family, my tribe, and we could carry on about that idea as well, you know. Did anything happen to this kid for hitting you in the face with any repercussions? You don't know. You know, I didn't tell on him. I didn't think that was honorable. But that stopped, you know, for the year. 
It just was like somebody's got to do something, and I'd rather it not be some school administrator who might have even slightly cheered him on. Who knows? <laughs> and so you mentioned this was around like that middle school time period. So did you also have a bar mitzvah right around that same time? Yeah, yeah it was you know the year before, and I you know read the Torah, read the Haftorah. Torah. I was formulating ideas about spirituality, about God none of which were talked about in my home. Very little was talked about in any kind of serious way about the nature of God or the nature of prayer in my conservative synagogue. It was really one of the most boring, irrelevant places that I could possibly be, except that I enjoyed seeing some of my friends. And so let's now bring in the musical side to you, because we have a good sense of where you were in terms of your Judaism. But whenever I interview someone who's this accomplished as a musician, I wonder, did they know at age three, four or five that they had a special skill for this? Or when did they grab that first instrument? And what was it that began the musical journey? Well, I think my if I had a special skill, it would be kind of abstractly organizing chaos. So I used to... <laughs> draw a lot as a kid. I used to sort of write stories. I used to be very proficient at somebody could make a scribble and I would turn it into something. I see things in clouds, put it that way. <laughs> right. And in some sense, music was is almost the same thing. There's something very disordered about the potential of many, many notes on a piano, let's say, and you're you're creating some order. So I don't really think that my musical gifts are natural. I think they've been developed to some extent. There's many people that I play with who I, I know have a much more native musical ability than I do. I'm very good, I think, at creating songs and structures and using lyrics. So when I was in sixth grade, I was at a Passover Seder, which in, when I was in Minnesota, it began like at five in the evening, you know, not halachic beginnings by any means. But I had an older cousin who I heard had an electric guitar, which to me, that was in a day where an electric guitar was not seen, maybe in a house of, you know, a country Western fan or something, but not in a Jewish home. And I went to see that after the gefilte fish was served, and I opened the velvet case of this Fender Duo Sonic. It was an all-encompassing interest. It had an incredible hold on me, just the physical appearance of the instrument. And it was at that point where, you know, my dad offered him $100 for that guitar, my cousin Doug, and I started to play and write songs and listen to music, and that was it. I was just kind of off, not only for the music, but what that could do for me. It made me feel special, feel different, that I was doing something that was much different than probably any other kids that I knew. So it did a lot for me. And so as I think about the way you're describing this, it just seems like you were destined to become a performer. And I even seen your background, you were performing at a pretty young age. So did you have this sense as you were getting turned on by this guitar and start playing and writing songs that this could actually be a profession for you? Or you were you playing around and just seeing where it would go? I don't know if I thought, you know, I've used the word profession, but yeah, this is just, it was like a, there was always a carrot in front of me. And I got paid our band $25 for a gig when I was in sixth grade, it was at the St. Paul Cerebral Palsy Society, whatever they called it. It was an incredible, indelible moment. I mean, I, re I can remember it vividly. And the idea of performing and using humor, my family was, especially my dad, really, really funny. You know, he could take opposites and create paradox. And my siblings were funny. And that was... We had a very warm and supportive home. And the humor was is a undervalued commodity in society. You know, this ability which there's a you know very Jewish context to it, even from the Gemara, from the Talmud. This setting up of opposites and colliding them unexpectedly, which is like flint, that's makes a spark. That's the nature of humor. 
So I, I knew that I had that ability and performing was a natural thing for me. And so how do you go then from this first paid gig in sixth grade to forming your first official band? Like at what age does that happen where it's like a band that... Well, that happened in sixth grade. That was official. That band was as serious to me. I took it as seriously as I do anything I do now. You know, I was on time. I was punctual. I was very obsessive about how we would appear and the songs were performed as well as we could at the time. It wasn't as though it was ever a lark for me. It was always serious. And everything that I do isn't, it, it hadn't changed. It's an outgrowth of that sort of serious look at this thing I was doing, which happened to be music. And so as I think about your story, when I'm interviewing one of our typical guests and we have them in those middle school years, the next phase is high school, college, what am I going to do with my career? But I get the sense that your story is going to be a little, a little bit different because we have you viewing yourself as a professional musician in sixth grade. And I know you're performing and you get into this group called Sussman Lawrence. So how do we get from this sixth grader who sees this as a career to you know forming this band and really taking off like that? First of all, in high school, in junior high, I was a very poor student. A lot of things happened to me that were very alien to the sort of Jewish oeuvre that I was grown up in. Things that I was involved in just by chance. Some of them were dangerous. I don't want to specify them, but if my kids were into the same thing I was into, I'd be extremely nervous. And I was a very poor student in seven, you know, junior high, middle school, and high school. I probably had like a D minus average. I was completely, you know, tuned out doing other things. Uh, music was just one of them. I felt unacknowledged. I felt bored at school. There was nothing for me there, you know, educationally. I was always an avid reader. So one of the bands that I joined was, uh, this was in my last year of high school, which I got out of, they told me I had enough credits to leave school a year early, which I did. Mm -hmm. and I, I got a job, but I got into this Caribbean Trinidadian reggae and calypso band when I was 16, 17. And it looked like they were a very popular band in Minneapolis. And, uh, there were a lot of guys trying out, much older people than me, maybe more proficient. And uh, somehow I got the gig. And these guys, Peter, come let me go down the road and play the Kaiso. <laughs> you know, it was such an influence on me. And I, they became like such dear friends of mine. And I learned to cook uh, oxtail soup then, curry chicken, you know, pepper sauce, you know. And the year before that, I played with, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the R&B singer Alexander O'Neill. He was total R&B, never really crossed over, but very famous. Any African-American, you know, musically oriented person between, say, 35 and 70 would know exactly who this guy was. And I played in that band for a year. That was right when Prince was coming up in Minneapolis. So I, I had all these not only musical experiences, but human experiences that nobody in my high school was having, I can tell you that much. They didn't, I couldn't even brag about it because it was just so off everyone's radar. It was just something like, if you knew, you knew, and you know that was the thing. And I, I didn't go to college. One of the reasons I didn't go to college was, of course, I was really into music and my band was taking off, but Really, it was, I didn't want to take the SAT. I never took it because I was very worried that I would get a score, which would tell me what I feared most, that you really weren't that smart. It wouldn't be a high score. I couldn't countenance having a number associated with my name for all the world to see that I wasn't that good I wasn't smart and that was a big factor which I've never really even admitted to myself till a few months ago well you, you just know. admitted it to more than just yourself right now yeah that's fine I'm good <laughs> I'm an open book wait what did your parents think though like you said you were getting D's 
So there could be parents who are like they could be putting pressure on you to raise your grades or they could see that you have like special skills. Yeah, my mom was a a teacher. She had her master's degree and she taught gifted education. I mean, she would recognize gifted children in different school districts and, you know, she would work with them. And I would bring home these report cards quarterly. And I would get into like some sort of trouble for a week. And I really tried. I really tried to write a social studies report about flax production in Iowa and, and on how that was important. But understand, I was involved in activities that I won't specify that were so interesting and so engrossing and so dangerous that nothing I was hearing about in school could possibly compare. And my parents, it was a different time, I think. They weren't neglectful per se, but in some sense, I'm a completely different parent on that level than than they would be, my wife and I. It might have been generational. My dad worked a lot. And I was very close with my parents, but my mom would get upset My dad would sort of like phone in some sort of, I don't know what, anger so that he would assuage my mom. And another week would go by and I guess go back to it. I tried. I wanted to try, you know. And uh, my dad said to me when I wasn't going to college, he said, just keep reading. I asked my mom to, "Why, why didn't you insist that I go to college? She said, well, you were so into your music. The other thing was my dad got a diagnosis of lymphoma when I was 17. So no one was thinking about college for me or any of that. It just was that was what the family was engaged in. That was the challenge. And, uh, you know, psychotherapy session, Jeff, Jeff, you're pulling it out. (laughs) That's my job. So I just want to ask a question in terms of your music. I would imagine as you're in these different bands and it's starting to take off, a lot of these gigs have to be on Friday nights, Saturday nights. So I'm I'm assuming that means your Judaism at that point is not at a place where you have a conflict of, should I be performing at these times? It wasn't really even a consideration. My dad died, I remember, um, the day after I turned 24. It was on a fr- Friday morning we buried him. And I had a series of three gigs in a row, Saturday, actually Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I played the show on Friday night. It was a very powerful show. And uh, no, Shabbat was not a thought, although Judaism was a thought. Um, If I may backtrack a little bit, while I was failing in my high school, especially in math, there was a private school in Minneapolis that would take me in spite of my math grades, but I had to, you know, shore up some math. And had a cousin who had turned from, who later became a doctor, and he was good at math. And the ostensible reason he wanted to teach me math was we went to a Chabad rabbi's house, or to the Chabad house at the time. His name is Moshe Feller. And uh, I came to the rabbis. I was interested to go because I'd never, like, sat with a bearded rabbi. I wasn't too impressed with the rabbis at my conservative shul. They couldn't answer my questions. So I said to this Moshe Feller, I said, you know, I, I just want to tell you from the outset that I don't believe in God. Little caveat there. I didn't believe in the anthropomorphic image of God that I had been fed, almost the Christian version of God. It was very dispensable. So I said to him, I got to tell you, whatever you're going to say, I don't believe in God. And he he was great. He goes, look, you don't believe in God. You could still put on tefillin. (laughs) Well, that's, that's funny. And so I did get tefillin from my cousin. And I was very surreptitious about putting them on. This is probably when I was about 15. And I would put them on the in the bathroom. You know, that's completely against Jewish law to do that. But what did I know? And I would 
just in the same place, I had a bathroom in the basement where I would blow out my pot into the backyard. <laughs> so I surreptitiously put on my tefillin there. And I did that for quite a while. So it wasn't like somebody had to force me into Jewish thought and practice. But at the time my dad died, I just wasn't quite there. Right. And so you were mentioning your dad before, and I know that your first solo album was called This Father's Day. So is that connected to what was going on in your life and what you were just sharing about your father's diagnosis? Yeah, sure it does. I've been writing a lot of songs for this band, Sussman Lawrence, and I was trying to be, in many cases, sort of funny or outrageous. But I was also writing songs that were pretty serious and not really playing them or showing them to the band. And my dad had a prognosis of about six months, and he lived for four years. And towards the end of the four-year period, it was Father's Day. It was in June, and we had been playing a show in Wisconsin, playing Baby Let Me Be Your Cigarette and all my classics to uh, much approval. I was living at my parents' house when we weren't on the road, and Father's Day, there was a lot of uh, excitement that we're going to have this Father's Day party to cheer him up, and there was locks in the refrigerator, and all the cousins would come to the house, and my cousins loved my dad. Everyone loved my dad because he was so self-effacing, so strong, so funny, so much in some way like the Rebbe, where he made you feel good about yourself. So I got home about five in the morning. And I, uh, I didn't have a tie or I didn't buy my dad any cologne, not that he wore a cologne. Like, I didn't get a Father's Day present. But I started writing a song, which just, I was so tired. It was so late. Now even the sun is coming up. And it turned out songs, like many people who are listening, whatever it is that people do, Oftentimes, things come to them without a lot of intellectualizing. Ideas fall into one's lap, into one's hands. The best of my songs always have been that way. And this song was no different, except it was, you know, very personal to me. It was a a love song to my dad. And I started to record it at this little four-track Porta studio. I started, I cried at the end of it. going to record it over again because like I cried that I screwed up the take and for some reason I left the tears and uh, I brought the tape upstairs my mom's like did you write a funny song to cheer up daddy and first of all we never called him daddy I called him dad and no it's not that funny and and you could see this little glint in my eye, like, what's he cooked up now? And all the cousins were there. And I put the tape in the cassette player. All the family members, and maybe there were 25 or 30 of them, they left the room. Everyone started crying. I mean, it wasn't a maudlin song, but it was just my father and I were now listening to this song together and kind of holding each other and... It wasn't until much later that somebody suggested that I put out that song as a tribute to my dad. And that was a big deal for me because a solo album, that would kind of break up the Three Musketeers band ethos. But that was a record that really 
took off and got me signed to Island Records. We had a video that was made for it that was playing on regular rotation on MTV before I had any kind of record deal. That was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And I got, you know, this incredible record deal on Island Records that on my insistence that record had to be the first record. And then so we've been talking a lot about Minnesota. Is this deal what takes you to New York as part of your journey? And I'm also wondering, as you come to New York, does this change things about your Judaism? Now you're going to be in a place where there's tons of Jews and even more Orthodox Jews. And how does that world open up to you? It did, yes, to everything you're saying. I didn't go to New York while my dad was still alive. I, I forestalled the move. But not long after he died, just to see that my mom was okay and I just got everyone to move to New York. We moved actually to New Jersey because we couldn't afford New York. And we had a number of people trying to get, and this is before the, this Father's Day record was on Island, about two years before. We had various producers, you know, working to work with this band, Sussman Lawrence, and make demos. And But one of the producers, his name is Kenny Vance, I don't know if anyone remembers the band Jay and the Americans, but they were huge. And Kenny Vance was one of the lead singers. He was uh, the first musical director for Saturday Night Live. He'd just really been around. And somebody, a, a lawyer came and said to Kenny Vance, come and do an appraisal on this guy, Peter Himmelman's band at the Ritz in New York City. And in walks this guy. And I didn't even know he was coming there. And he comes in and he goes... Look, I, I look. I don't really know what to tell you about what I just heard. I mean, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, who cares? <laughs> but he and I made very close friends. I love him today, and I I loved him then. Quickly, he he says to me one night, he goes, "Look, I know a lot of people in this town. I know uh, Woody Allen. I've been in a couple of his movies. I used to date Diane Keaton." I know Lenny Warnock, a president of Warner Brothers Records. Now, he's funny, so he's not like a bragger, but he says, he's setting me up for this. He goes, but I'd like to take you to my main connection. It's a religious Jew in Brooklyn. (laughs) Looking at me like, this is going to be hard for me to persuade this guy. Now, my dad had just died. I was in New York. I'd always been you know, gravitating towards a deeper level of Judaism. And I was totally into it. So we cross over the Brooklyn Bridge and we go to Crown Heights and we go to his main connection, which is this guy named Simon Jacobson, who people might have read. He had a bestseller called Toward a Meaningful Life. Simon was one of the oral scribes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So when the Lubavitcher Rebbe would speak on Shabbos and holidays, when where you who was not... Uh, legal and Jewish law to record, he had five people that would listen with this incredible auditory memory, not listening to some sort of small thing, but a five or six hour sicha that would be cyclically more and more complex as the time went on. And it was amazing because I'd gone with my wife, who was not my wife at this time, but later to be my wife, watching Simon spool out the five, four, five, six hour. And this is Davidamil, and it was just like unbelievable. And the first night I met Simon, I came to the house, you know, long beard and pretty heavy set. And I was just kind of looking around. I mean, I'd seen Lubavitchers here and there, but there was something about Simon I immediately really liked. And understand it was a very propitious night. I'd just gotten a record deal. I, all of a sudden, I had a lot of money. I'd never had any money before. I got this record deal that I'd wanted. My father had died. Everything was cracking open. I had a girlfriend that I had for 11 years. She wasn't Jewish. Um, I had all sorts of concubines and things, you know, it, I had my own sort of organization of how these things should work. Mm-hmm. And I met Simon. It was just Simon, myself, and Kenny. Kenny left at about 11. I kept going with Simon till like three in the morning, one of those 
long conversations. And finally, I'm looking around. He had pictures of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on the walls. He had pictures of like shtetl life. And I said to Simon, you know, what's the deal with all the pictures of the Lubavitcher Rebbe? It seems a little cultish to me. And he was not defensive at all and gave me an answer that was satisfactory. He says, Look, it's like an inspiring uh, grandfather. I, I, I derive uh, certain uh, insights from the Rebbe, and I'd like to have this picture around. I'm like, makes sense. And then he starts in. So now it's getting really late. This is really a turning point. He says, uh, look, a tzaddik can do anything. Now, to explain, a tzaddik, maybe you're Jewish and you've heard colloquially, Tzaddik, like, oh, Mort Bernstein, he, he's a, such a tzaddik, he got me a deal on a new car battery. That, that's not what Simon was saying. <laughs> he was saying that a tzaddik is a, a very, very rare sort of human being. It's someone for whom there is no sense of self. Everything that this tzaddik does, he or she, is completely altruistic. They are special in this way so he says to me look a tzaddik could do anything i'm like really can they fly he goes look i've never seen anyone flying i'm listening because but understand to a tzaddik whether you're walking uh, on the face of the earth or flying 30 40 feet above it it's all the same miracle i'm like Damn, son. Is that what Judaism is about? Basically, yes. It's taking and extracting the the wonder from things that we think are uh, mundane. The next day, I went out and bought a talus cotton, a, that little talus that you wear under your shirt. And I was probably one of the quickest guys they ever got into the cult. I, you shouldn't be calling a cult anymore. You don't feel that way. Yeah, no, I just, that's with that's sardonic. <laughs> if you'd seen my face, you'd know. So guys, whoever's listening, I don't think it's a cult at all. I just... Good save. I just said that. Everyone's, everyone relax. Um, but, you know, I sort of told my girlfriend at the time that this is it for us. And it was hard because in some ways I cared about her a great deal. I just didn't see her as the mother of my children and, and the future and all the concubines stuff stopped. And that was a huge turning point for me. One of the biggest. And so you mentioned the Rebbe and all the pictures that were up in this inspiring conversation that you're having. Do you then get an opportunity to meet him? I would think that wasn't part of your life up until that point, but I would think that would be a question you'd ask. Can I meet this person that so inspires you? Well, I didn't even have to ask. It was very soon. It was Shavuot, Shavuot, night where Shavuos had ended the two two days and there were all these Hasidim in Crown Heights that were going to see the Rebbe. They would stand maybe a thousand or more people and wait. The Rebbe would give each one a blessing, a bracha, give them a little glass of wine, a little plastic cup, and the Rebbe would kind of, you know, give them a blessing. When I got up there, Simon whispered in his ear, something to the effect that this guy is a musician on the road. And uh, he gave me a bottle of vodka, a small bottle, which was given to like teachers, educators, people that were in sort of the public sphere, that you would go for a year wherever you travel and make a l'chaim and a blessing with someone until Passover, at which time, you know, you'd have to finish because vodka is not kosher for Passover. So when I got that bottle, everyone's like, who's this guy? Who got the, you got a bottle? Like, who's this, you know, guy? <laughs> they got a bottle. And uh, there were other times that I came and got that bottle. There were other times that I stood in front of the Rebbe for dollars. And uh, some of the musicians that I play with, one of them was my cousin from this band, Sussman Lawrence, and he's a genius musician. And while I was going to Crown Heights to see the Rebbe and to be there for Shabbos, I'd ask my friends, Jeff in particular, why don't you come with me to this? It's just 
from a, you know, sociological experiment point of view, just to look at something different rather than staying around and watching, you know, Three's Company or whatever show was playing at the time. He never did, but he asked me um, somewhat recently, what was it like to meet the Rebbe? And this is the way I explained it. I said, so imagine that you've just done some loathsome thing and you are feeling this deep sense of shame. The world feels dark. You feel loathsome. You feel like a worm. You feel hopeless as a result of this thing. And now everything that you do seems dark and hopeless. I said, put yourself and your mind into that dark place. And Jeff's got a brilliant imagination. He goes, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I said, a meeting with the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the exact opposite of that. Mm. I'd have you know, several interesting encounters and meetings with the Rebbe, and, and it becomes a responsibility that I've been given these gifts by God, these circumstances, that I need to use them to uplift people in, in the ways that I was uplifted. So I want to now connect this back to your musical journey, because I've interviewed so many people who have this really impactful moment like you just described, but then from there to becoming fully observant, it could be five, ten years, and you kind of told the story like, they got me in one night. So I just wanted to ask you, you have this flourishing musical career, and I asked you earlier about the fact that the gigs are on Friday nights and Saturday nights a lot of the times, and now you're turned on by this you know, religious experience and it sounds like, okay, I got a talus, and maybe I'm going to start taking in all these things. So how do you mesh these two things going on in your life? Well, I mean, it wasn't maybe as difficult as you'd think. I mean, when a person has a passion towards something, they don't really wrestle as much as you'd think in going forward to whatever that is. If somebody is making them do something, it's there's no volition there, then it becomes really challenging. So nobody was... I was completely free to do whatever I want. And this was all my initiative. So I remember I was on Island Records. The new president had been installed. His name was Lou Malia, this very super funny kind of gruff speaking Italian guy who had like been involved in the Eagles career. I was his first signing on Island Records. And we were close. And my sort of movement from that night with Simon talking about flying or not to actually keeping Shabbos was about five months. It wasn't very long. Um, I wouldn't eat shrimp. I wouldn't eat pork. Then I would only eat chicken. Then I would only eat chicken. And it was all, all happening quickly. And I said to Lumalia once, he was trying to get me on these tours with Sting, the couple other people that he had in mind. And I just told him, I came in the office I was living in Hell's Kitchen. I took a subway down to the village. I said, Lou, I'm keeping this thing now called Shabbos. You know, I won't be able to play on Friday night. He's like, ah, Shabbos. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, like, and he thought I was joking because he's he was sort of a lapsed Catholic. And when I explained a lot to him where I was coming from, he was strangely supportive of it. It made his job tremendously difficult. But he could tell it was for real, and it was. And slowly I just started not playing on Friday night. My last gig was with Joe Cocker. We opened for Joe Cocker. I'd had three or four Friday nights. I, I did them. And after the last gig, I got off stage. It wasn't so dramatic. I just went back to my hotel room. I walked back, you know, it was quite a ways. It was in Cleveland. And that was the last Shabbos I ever played. You know, that was it. I, mm -hmm. I went, played with uh, Greg Allman, if anyone knows the Allman brothers. And I was lighting Shabbos candles, you know, <laughs> after I'd perform backstage it was a summer so it got dark and he goes what are you doing there 
I'm like, I'm, I'm lighting these uh, Shabbos candles. He goes, that's a Jewish thing, right? I'm like, yeah. They were like in Budweiser bottles. And he goes, <laughs> uh, well, that's good. You're Jewish type. I like that. And then he gets out and he's sitting at his organ. He goes, I just uh, sat around with uh, Peter Himmelman doing some, I don't know what he was doing. He's at his organ, like he's on stage. He goes, I can tell you what, Peter Himmelman band may, may not be the best band, but this band better look out and then growl, windows, <laughs> you know. our producer gary who is an accomplished musician himself has chosen a few samples that we're going to play and give you a chance to comment on them so the first one he selected it's called beneath your watching eyes so let's hear the clip it means so much won't you help me understand Draw me near All my life is your command Beneath your watching eyes I shall not stumble From your timeless course I shall not digress So that song is from your 1989 album, Synesthesia. Listening to that, it's making me think, obviously, of God, and I'm wondering where you are in your journey that you come up with a song like that. Yeah, I mean, I usually remember something about all the songs I've written. I've been hundreds and hundreds of them. That one, I was, you know, keeping Shabbos. I probably wrote that one in 1987, maybe earlier. And I was at my sister's house in uh, Oradell, New Jersey. It was I spent Shabbos there. You know, my sister is not yet keeping Shabbos. And I went to their piano and that one was one of those things that just floats down. You take dictation and you get it. That's such an interesting thing to me about where the inspiration for these songs come from and how they go from your head onto paper and then come to life. It's really like a remarkable thing. If they come from your head, and this is a strange little thing, the less they come from your head, in other words, the less intellectualizing one does the more freely these things come. Now, at some point, you sort of have a kind of a parallel view. There is organization, there is chord structure, and so on. But it rests under the muse or the, or the emotional stuff. It's there to support it, but it doesn't overtake it. And then sort of there's sometimes an editorial process, you know, something you want to fix up. That's purely intellectual. Right. Or mostly. But yeah, there's a lot of things that just come down, and it's not an unusual experience for anyone. There's no way to do justice to just how prolific your career has been musically, but we did select a second clip that I want to share. So I know this came out in in 91, and you were with Sony Records at that time, a major label. So this song is called Impermanent Things, and Gary's going to play us a clip. All these impermanent things Well, they point in all directions Like second-hand reflections And they're leading us to subtle shades of violence And why keep hanging on To things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us along day to day so as i'm listening to that clip i'm thinking about all the musicians that i've heard interviewed over the years and i feel like they fall in two buckets the ones who want to tell you exactly what inspired a song and what it's about and what the meaning is and other ones who say that it's really private like i'm glad you enjoy the music and it can mean whatever you want it to mean to you how would you describe this song? Well, I think this song's pretty... I mean, if you heard the whole thing, it's not hard to understand where it's coming from. I mean, 
because these are like notes in a journal. Well, exactly where was I at the time? And I just sort of been married for a couple of years. My son, who's 33, was probably, I don't know, must have been like a baby when this came out, or at least when I wrote it. I usually write the songs a year or two before they wind up coming out. So uh, I was living a very different life than I had been just a year or two before. And those circumstances are always very propitious for creativity, for imagining in different ways, for having certain courage to say certain things. In some ways, that would be a kind of a theme song for me. And so if, if only we had five or six hours and we could go through like two or three key songs from each of these years, but just to take this all the way almost to the present, the third song that Gary selected is actually from 2020. It's a song called Press On from an album of the same title. So let's hear that clip. In the middle of the river, there's a brown and white pony stuck out on a rock with the current rushing by. The sun beats down and the wind whips up as a mother of crows bursts into the sky I got a lucid feeling like something inside me is working up the courage to confront my own death I step out in the water that's colder than anger so cold it feels impossible to take my next breath as I go under, I think about my mother. I think about her hands just a stroke in my face. I come up to the surface, I look up at the sky. I see swirls of red dust rising into space. Keep your head raised up and press on. Some branches and a pile of dry leaves. I struck a couple matches and I finally make a fire. You know what I love about that song is that the the beginning where the words are alternating with the music, they have the same energy. It's almost like the words feel like they're talking to you, and then the music feels like it's talking to you also. It has like the exact same energy to it. Yeah, yeah. I like, you know, that's a song that just came out of nowhere when my kids left the house and my wife and I, we always eat dinner together. And she's like, are we going to eat in 15 minutes, you know, or let's come in here and make dinner because I like to cook or whatever it was. And I'm like, oh, 15 minutes. And all of a sudden there's this song and uh, I wrote it. This isn't the recording of it, but I, I made a recording of it. And, and I, I was like, yeah, that's, I love that. I love that song. I love that groove. And the musicians that were playing with me are so great. And I love to play that song because I don't know what it, it's all about. I, I rediscover it every time. And it's interesting, you mentioned your wife a couple times in your last couple answers, but we didn't exactly talk about how she came into your life. And I would think it would take a very unique person, given your background and then this quick transformation. How was she raised and how did she come into your life compared to where you were before? Like you said, you were dating a non-Jewish person. So what changed there and, and what was her background? Well, that's a whole long story. Uh, and that is not going to be told <laughs> Do it in a minute or less. Else. I will say, though, that uh, we've been married almost 35 years. We've got two grandchildren and four great kids. Kanainahara, as they say. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. And uh, I don't know. Do you know that you know when you wear a kittel? You know, a kittel is a... On Yom Kippur. Garment you wear on, on Yom Kippur. You also wear it when you die, and you also wear it at your wedding. And it, when you marry and who you marry and the decision to marry, it's as significant an event as your own birth and your own passing. So, you know, Maria has elevated me to places emotionally, spiritually, creatively that I never would have gotten to she just got a manuscript of poetry picked up by a very renowned poetry publisher so it's a lot of festivities in the house but her use of language has been a huge influence on me and 
That's all I can say on that matter. But in terms of coming together as a couple, the thought was we're going to raise an Orthodox fan. Like she was at that point as you were coming together that that was going to be your journey? Pretty much. You know, that was that was the idea and that sort of is the idea. I mean, two people aren't always on, they're never on the exact same path, mm-hmm. which is something that young married people need to know. <laughs> Anybody does, you know, because that's the trick about marriage. It's that you're doing something that's completely unnatural. You're putting somebody else's welfare at least a equal or above your own. That's not a human trait. That's something that's learned and something that has to be accepted. And then you've also mentioned having kids and, and that journey. And I see in your background that you've done five children's albums. So were those coming about at the same time as, as your perspective changed and you're raising your own family? Well, they always they came about at a time when somebody said, Hey, can you make a kid's record and I'll pay you X amount of money? I need to buy X amount of time. <laughs> that, by the way, not joking, is the best motivation for any kind of art, from Michelangelo to whomever. Here's some lucre, here is some reward, whatever it is, you name it, it doesn't have to be financial, and I need it at this time. Or you're setting a time for yourself. Otherwise, you no, nobody ever gets anything done. Right. It has to be a reward in a time frame. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Jeff Cohen, the podcast. <laughs> so what, what's the difference between putting out children's albums versus what you've been doing before? Not too much different. I, my kids' albums are harmonically very sophisticated. They're generally sort of tongue-in-cheek. There's adult layer to it, and there's a a layer for children but it's not really that different i'm not saying things in my songs that i think kids wouldn't be able to understand and when i talk to a kid it's like you know i talk to kids all the time young children and you speak at a level that they're going to understand but you don't change essentially the first part of the tanya talks about that but that's for (laughs) later Good job tying it together. Mm-hmm. So before we even wrap the interview, there are two other areas I just want to quickly go into just to give you a chance to talk about them. So one of them is the Spinoza Bear Project. So can you just share how you got involved in that? Um, Steve Greenberg, you probably don't know who he is, but you know the song. Funky Town. <laughs> For sure. So he was a friend of mine in Minneapolis, and he knew a woman that had this teddy bear project. And that was a time limit and money. And that was interesting to me, but it became more interesting. It was a teddy bear that was eventually used for autistic children, for rape victims. And I wrote this music for it. I probably wrote 12 or so songs. And then I became the voice of the bear. This is when I was like 19 years old. And this is a voice I use, Spinoza Bear. He kind of comes from the South a little bit, and he had very encouraging messages for kids and adults. I used to get mail from people, one, one letter in particular. This woman said my daughter, who had severe autism, had never responded to anything in her life. She was about seven. And they turned on the tape, and it was my voice, I'm your friend, and my name is Spinoza. And the daughter, I get goosebumps because now I understand what it's all about for this woman. She heard it, walked over to the bear, and hugged the bear, which may not seem like much. That was splitting of the Red Sea for that woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think much about Spinoza Bear now the company went out of business or whatever. But it was just one more way of making some money and, you know, doing whatever needed to be done, you know. Right. And then there's another company called Big Muse that you're involved in. So mm-hmm. can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's that's a company I started in 2011. And I'm still involved with that. I've gone around to different companies like uh, Boeing, 3M. They just did the George Clooney Organization for Justice, The Gap, Coca-Cola. And, and really, it's sort of talking about some of the stuff we're just talking about now. How does one take away the sort of prison of self-judgment and fear that makes a person, it doesn't change a person. What 
changes the person as this shell, this klipa, to use a Jewish term, this shell of fear about not sharing yourself with other people, about not doing the things that one desires, about not saying the things that one thinks are important. And, uh, you know, the work that I've done, it's always very successful with different companies. I had a call with somebody at Meta recently. Uh, I wrote a book basically about this in 2017. It came out on Penguin. It's called Let Me Out. And it's a very fascinating piece of my life. You know, it's an important part of what I do. You know, I've helped inner city school resource poor kids, the same ideas. And really, it's my struggle to release myself from my own fears, fears of judgment, which is a lifelong process, somewhat in, in the way that I grew up, the people that I knew, and in, even in my family, talking about God was, was a crazy person. So I, I've finished a new book, which is called Suspended by No String, a songwriter's reflection on faith, aliveness, and wonder. And I had to, after sending it to certain people, I had to write a, uh, an author's note and caveat why I've chosen in a book about faith to use the word God, which in some ways is seen as sinister, as foolish, as, you know, super right wing, you know, dangerous, actually. And I think it's a dangerous thing that people have come to that assumption about God. And it it comes from negative experiences with religion. It's understandable. The word that comes to mind as I've been getting to know you is prolific. I mean, just in writing and music and religion, like Wait, everything should, you describe. You know that in my business, prolific is not necessarily a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, what does it mean in music well, it compared means, to how It I'm means that it. you just put out a lot of stuff, you know, it could be junk. But it's not, a lot of it's not good. Is what yeah, you mean. it could be. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, attest to the quality of, of what's been put out. Well, he was... Um, Prolific, Nebuch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. But I was using the word to mean I can't even imagine what's next on your bucket list religiously and musically with all the different directions you've gone. So where, where are you focused over the next three to five years? Well, I mean, I have a new record that should be coming out pretty soon. It's called Son of David. That happens to be me. Um, it's using my band from Sussman Lawrence that we haven't recorded together since 1994 probably do a Kickstarter on that after the first of the year, getting this book out, um, doing a lot more touring, doing some more interesting Big Muse work, www.bigmuse.com. Good plug. Yeah. Very nice. So we like to close all of our interviews with the lightning round. I'm going to just ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I've heard a lot from your story is this blend of religion and music. So what advice would you give to someone who's kind of at the beginning of their journey and also sees they have a talent for music about how both of those can flourish for them as they get older? Well, that's not a lightning round. Just comfortable (laughs) because the two things harmonize beautifully. Right. Well, that came through loud and clear in your story. So let's ask you a faster question. What do you think is the hardest instrument for someone to learn? Hmm. I don't know. Um, it wouldn't be the great one to answer that, but uh, an instrument like the trumpet where you have to really develop your embouchure or a trombone might be very difficult. Okay, and then someone like you who has all these talented musicians around you when you're performing, what happens at the Shabbos table? What's the signature song? At my table? We don't do too yeah. much singing, actually. What? No, no, How, no, we don't. If I was at your table, I'd be like expecting a concert. No, 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 we don't. Especially now if the kids are around and stuff. No. I'm very quiet now around the table, just because there's such a great show going on. Fair enough. See, I actually hear that a lot. Like, I've interviewed stand-up comedians, and they say, it really disappoints me that people expect that at my Shabbos table I'm going to be doing a performance. Like, I'm not on stage at that moment. I'm just trying to enjoy a nice meal and be with well, my family. Well, you know, my, I have a son-in-law who's brilliant. He's going to become a uh, retinal surgeon, but he's Sephardic, and he's a great singer. He could have been literally a star as a singer. So he'll sing some Sephardic melodies and mostly regale us, maybe whip out some Stevie Wonder at the same time. All right, so last question. Who's around today who's performing that our listeners would know that inspires you or do you just think is just like really talented? Yeah, there's a friend of mine, a young guy named Christian Lee Hudson. Mm-hmm. 
H-U-T-S-O-N. And he's just an amazing, gifted songwriter. I think he's fantastic. All right, so that's someone for our listeners to check out. And Peter Himmelman, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.